I'm Anna Webb. This is A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Binks. You know you're related to the Italian Greyhound. And even if you had two hips and you were as fast as Grease Lightning, I definitely wouldn't race you. That's because it's a cruel and unnecessary sport. So we're about to jump on Zoom and talk with a panel of experts and activists to find out more about how terrible life is for racing dogs and what is being done to ban this barbaric pastime. Professor David Olusaga, welcome to A Dog's Life. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, you've been so busy, so we really appreciate this time just to join us, really, and, and air your love of greyhounds. You own one, I think. I have um, a boy called George. He's a, a blue-grey greyhound, and we got him about a year after we lost our previous two greyhounds, um, Jeffrey and Dottie, who we'd had for um, 13 years. So it's 15, 16 years. Greyhounds have been part of my family. Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, and I assume they were all ex-racers. They were. And to me, being in a position to get a dog is to be in a position to save a dog. It's never occurred to me. It's never seemed a viable or sensible or even a kind of sane option to go to someone who's breeding dogs, bringing animals into existence when so many animals are suffering. So the moment me and my partner were settled down and we thought we could look after dogs, um, we wanted to get rescue dogs. And when we looked into it, it was quite clear that, well, there were two species of dog, uh, breeds of dog, I should say, that oh, yes. were in need of rescue. Um, there were Staffordshire Bull Terriers that my mother had, because um, um, my mother's just as committed to looking after dogs as I am, and there were greyhounds. And um, greyhounds suited our lives more because they're so incredibly lazy and they slept so much. We yes. both worked and we had people come to walk them during the day and we would sort of, one of us would work at home. So um, it was, we, we went into what, wanting dogs, wanting to rescue dogs that needed homes. And, grey, and we didn't really know anything about greyhounds until that moment. Well, and when we asked advice, people said, well, what you should get is a couple of greyhounds. Yes, and they make wonderful pets. They're so elegant. And they are, as far as I know, the only breed of dog to be mentioned in the Bible, David, because they are really, you know, ancient, magnificent hunting dogs. But yet they adapt to modern living so well. I've got lots of friends who have greyhounds. I was talking to the Alliance about their petition, David, and I've, I've seen some documentaries and, you know, been chatting with them. And I'm so upset at the cruelty that still goes on in greyhound racing. You know, we're in an age now where animals have a law, the Animal Welfare Act, and <laughs> it doesn't seem to have made any difference, David. What are your thoughts? I think greyhound racing is, is a relic from the periods in our past when using animals for sport, using animals for betting was normal, the same as we had flat-faced dogs who were involved in dog fighting and in, in, in uh, bear baiting and greyhound racing is a relic of that. And I'm not saying it's as in nature as cruel of that, but it, what it has within it is a view of dogs as livestock, as creatures that are there to create money for the benefit of people who own them, 
rather than as family pets. Now, of course, there's people who have sheep dogs. It's not, I'm not saying working dogs can't be happy. The police, the army have dogs. What I'm saying is that this is there is a mindset within that industry which, by its nature, because it is an industry, treats these animals like commodities in a nation where most people think most dogs should be treated as pets. Absolutely. And perhaps it's the self-regulation of the industry as well that enables oh, a lot of suffering to still go on. There's the self-regulation, but there's also a, a, a propaganda movement, which is very obvious if you look online. The greyhound racing is trying to do what, what the tobacco industry did in the 60s. It knows the reality, and it's trying to create a false alternative narrative to muddy the waters. It's really simple. Hundreds of dogs every year die because their owners don't see them as a viable economic consideration anymore, and so they are killed. Now, no, no matter what they say, no matter how many false arguments are put forward, that's the reality. Now, people in the greyhound racing will, industry will say, well, these dogs love to run. Of course they love to run. It's an ancient instinct. They have been bred for thousands of years. Of course they love to run. No one has to force them to run. The problem is when they break a leg or when they're not fast enough or when they're too old. I've spent 15 years of my life with greyhounds as part of my family, and I can see the scars on their body. I can see the scars in their minds. And I'm bored of being told that this is a, a, a gentle, kind industry and it's being maligned by these, uh, these, these animal welfare fanatics. This is an industry that commodifies beautiful, gentle creatures and uses them for profit. And if betting was not, if there was no betting, this industry would have economically collapsed decades ago. This is about betting. It is, it is. And I think, you know, man is so guilty of ego and greed. And for me, dogs represent the polar opposite. They're the truth, aren't they, David? And I think, you know, we need to be looking at greyhounds like all dogs, because they are dogs, as the way to save us from ourselves. It's a, it's a weird form of, of schizophrenia. We have our attitudes to, to dogs, and yet this one breed one of the most ancient of all breeds can be mistreated in a way that somehow just doesn't doesn't strike everybody as as abhorrent. And I, you know, as I know, some of the adverts say, if this was Labradors, hundreds of them being being killed every year because they weren't fast enough or because they 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 weren't needed, it would strike us. We've somehow got used to the idea that this one breed of dog can be abused and mistreated, and that's okay because it's traditional. I know. We are, we're, we're better than this. We are, we are a country that we define ourselves. What's one of the big things? Yes. The 18th, 19th century, well, really from the Victorian age on, I should say, from the 19th century on, we've defined ourselves, a nation that has a, 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 a special relationship with animals, but particularly dogs. And yet we have a blind spot when it comes to greyhounds. And also, I think greyhounds suffer from um, a, a sort of a mistaken impression of what they are. They are the most gentle dogs that I've known. They, they, they love sofas, they're very gentle, they're, they're, they're very sleepy, they, they sleep lots of the time. Um, they're very cautious and sometimes quite skittish. And this idea that they are these sort of muscular machines because they look so elegant, mm. I, think, I think it's a fixation on the 
bodies of these these animals rather than their their nature oh without doubt please say something about the petition why all our listeners should definitely get online and sign this so that it gets read in parliament with a view to banning this cruel industry we need to end greyhound racing it's a relic of a forgotten age and it is leading to the deaths of hundreds of beautiful sweet dogs every year in our country and we're better than this. We need to live up to who we say we are. We're a country that has a special, unique, passionate relationship with the most wonderful creature that there is, the dog, an animal that evolved with us, a relationship between us and them that is absolutely ancient. And we're just, we're better than this. Thank you, Professor. And now in today's show, we're having a roundtable discussion on greyhound racing with a number of experts. Julie. Welcome from the Alliance Against Greyhound Racing. Thank you. Andrew Knight, you're a vet and professor of animal welfare and ethics at Winchester University. Welcome also to A Dog's Life. Thank you. And Sarah Pennells, you're a former financial journalist and now you work for an insurance provider, I think. Welcome to A Dog's Life as well. Thanks very much. And today we've all got together to talk about greyhounds, um, a breed that I love and has been quite maligned, shall we say, by the racing industry. So I'd like to start with Julie from the Alliance Against Greyhound Racing. Now, you know, many people listening might think because the greyhound is the fastest breed of dog that they must um, love racing. But why is this self-regulated industry not as happy as we might think? Oh, well, I rescued my first greyhound more than 20 years ago and my family said they wanted to adopt um, an ex-racer and I was really not on board with the idea. I found the wire muzzles really quite off-putting and I thought they don't look very robust or very affectionate. I've been used to having very cuddly dogs. And then um, I went along with it. I thought, well, we may as well. And I couldn't have been more wrong. They are the most sensitive, forgiving dogs I think I've ever met. And many of the ex-racers I've had don't respond well at the beginning to metallic noises, I suppose, from the traps and the vehicles. And take a while to settle into a home but once they're there they truly are the couch potatoes that the Americans describe them as. So then I started to look into this a little bit more and realised that it's, it's not just about a night at the dogs. In fact the track attendances are very much in demise. The problem is the fact that um, dogs, roughly 800 dogs per day, are racing at about a dozen tracks in the UK from eight in the morning until about 10 at night in order to beam racing through the internet and if our high street bookmakers were open into the bookie shops that you see in towns. And about 5,000, more than 5,000 are racing each week. So I then realized it's a vast number of dogs that are being put at risk. Um, it's possible it, within self-regulation for them to have a dog put to sleep because um, an injury that's otherwise treatable is considered too costly within a multi-million pound industry. And then I realised that, you know, there's also doping that can happen and read the report which had been commissioned by Great Exploitations and they contributed in, to the report about repeated racing on oval tracks and the adverse impact that can have on a greyhound's body. And I just found the whole, whole thing cruel and 
totally horrific in a in a modern society absolutely and i guess this has taken you on your journey um with the alliance against greyhound racing yes uh, i mean we, we when we started to work together as a group of individuals who are largely greyhound owners and some of them are you know campaigners that have a track record in campaigning against greyhound racing we thought well would we call for uh, changes to be made to racing? What could those changes be? But once you look at the impact on the dogs, the injury statistics and the death statistics, really there isn't much that could be done other than straight racing to reduce the, the impact on a greyhound's body and, and the cruelty. So we thought there's nothing more to ask for than a ban. Indeed, it's, it's been a controversial subject for many years. I do remember way back, it was Dogs Today magazine, I think picked up on a piece that was in the Sunday Times to highlight the mass graves in Ireland and quite unethical ways of finishing a dog's career, shall we say. And I, I'm quite appalled really by having read some of Andrew Knight's research on the injuries, Julie, that you were just talking about. So Andrew, bringing you in here, you've done extensive research specifically on, on the injuries that greyhounds sustain on this oval track. Can you explain a bit more about these and, and how bad they really are? Sure. So I did a lot of research looking into what are the reasons why we're seeing um, literally hundreds and hundreds of serious injuries and deaths on the racing tracks each year. And it comes down to uh, the factors relating to the greyhounds themselves. Uh, they're very high speed athletes. They're the fastest uh, breed of, of uh, dog. Uh, they can run at sustained speeds of like 65 kilometers an hour or 40 miles an hour. Uh, compare that to uh, the fastest human sprinter at about 29 kilometers an hour, so more than double. So wow. they run at very, very high speeds. And it's also the factors relating to the tracks around which, which they race. Um, these factors increase their risks of injuries. Um, in particular, the curved nature of the tracks uh, causes the greyhounds to bunch up um, when they're cornering around those, around those curves. They're oval-shaped tracks and they consistently run in a counterclockwise direction. So this does two things. One is it causes them to bunch up and the corners are where most of the injuries occur. Uh, when you're running that fast, carrying the weight of your body at such high speed, if there's anything that interferes with their gait at all, such as another greyhound uh, accidentally coming in front of them, uh, then you get, get a real risk of a collision. And at 65 kilometres an hour, that uh, cannon does result in death, unfortunately. Uh, we know from driver training of people in cars that the speed for a fatality, um, if there's a pedestrian colliding with a car, is about 30 kilometres an hour. So we're talking 60, 65 kilometres an hour here, so you can see the danger. The other thing is that because they're uh, leaning into the curve, their weight is always on the left side of the body. So the stresses and strains upon the bones are very uneven. And this actually results in uh, calcium being leached out of the bones on the right-hand side and deposited into the bones on the left-hand side. But whilst this process is going on, there's a weakness of the bones uh, until that process is finished. Um, that, along with the, the uneven stresses being applied, for example, that the right hind leg is constantly propelling the greyhound in sort of an arcing, arcing motion. 
um, and the front left uh, foot is being used as a sort of a pivot. Mm. Um, these constant stresses result in in a really high rate of, of fractures um, of the the bones of the feet and the hind legs, which are characteristic. They keep occurring in the same kinds of way. So there's factors relating to the design of the tracks, the curves, uh, and the very high speed at which these dogs race, which seems to result in really common clusters of, of certain injuries and unfortunately a significant risk of being killed uh, on the racing track as well. So, I mean, it's probably a silly question to ask, but would it help the situation if they made the track straight, a bit like um, with a horse race, for example? <laughs> Absolutely, and that, that's a great example because uh, these curved racing tracks were essentially uh, designed um, back around the 1920s when greyhound racing began in the UK uh, in order that people could sit in giant seating stands and watch the dogs basically run in circles in front of them so that they it would, was convenient for the viewers. Nowadays, we know that with horse racing, uh, we've got high-speed videography uh, and indeed the internet uh, and broadcast technology to be able to broadcast uh, high-definition photographic finishes uh, to viewers wherever they might be. So uh, we've moved on in horse racing. There's, there's absolutely the same potential to move on in greyhound racing as well. There's no need uh, with modern cameras and broadcast technology for greyhounds to have to race in constant circles in front of people sitting in, in stands. It's high time that we modernise these tracks to get rid of those curves and to use straightened tracks. That's one of the uh, many factors which would significantly decrease injury risk. Wow, but it would mean rebuilding the stadia, I guess. But as we're living in such you know, pandemic times, nobody can really go to these stadia now. I mean, going back to Julie quickly now, COVID might really have helped promote banning greyhound racing in real life and that maybe like the Grand National last year because of the pandemic was simulated. Could, could that not happen now more because we you know, we've got used to saying at home. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but I'm not so sure that it's COVID that makes the difference. Um, so in the way that football has continued behind closed doors for greyhound racing, um, that's business as usual. They're always operating from empty tracks during weekdays and Saturdays and Sundays to stream racing around the world. The tracks are only open for the public a couple of nights a week. So behind closed doors is business as usual. And in answer to your question about animation, if, if we have to have gambling on a product like this, there is absolutely no reason why it couldn't be on simulated virtual racing. Uh, they would have betting with integrity. There would, the imagery is excellent. It would be fantastic as a substitute. And it would be more apt in a, a modern society in terms of animal welfare because you wouldn't be putting those dogs at risk in the way that Andrew's just described. We wouldn't see, based on current statistics, we wouldn't see up to 14 dogs dying per week in, in the racing industry. Julie, I read your report about the temperatures where Andrew can also back up here. Um, a couple of summers ago, we had that ridiculous summer where you know we were hotter than Africa and all the dog events, all the dog shows that summer were cancelled for welfare reasons. It was just unacceptable for dogs to go out and about in, in that heat. Yet, greyhound racing carried on. And that's when my ears pricked up, really. I just thought, 
What do you mean? They can't still be racing greyhounds in this heat. But they were, right, Andrew? Uh, yes, absolutely. And this is worrying both because of the effects on the dogs directly. Imagine, you know, trying to sprint long distances uh, when it's getting up around 30 Celsius. It's not um, an, a, a pleasant thought at all. But it also affects the tracks. The tracks actually become harder as they dry out in this extreme heat. And the, the harder tracks actually uh, result in even higher speeds of the dogs that travel along, along them. So that actually increases the risks even further. So yes, there are several sensible upper limits above which racing should not be occurring and what occurred during that heat wave was uh, definitely in excess of any sensible limit. That's absolutely shocking. Bringing Sarah in now, Sarah Pennells. Hello. Um, what are your initial thoughts hearing all of this as uh, an avid greyhound owner and lover? Yeah, it's really interesting to hear the kind of the, the science, the veterinary science behind why um, greyhounds get injured so frequently and you know interesting and horrifying I think in equal measure and I, I think for myself I mean I, I've been a greyhound owner now for six years I had one greyhound for a couple of years and now I've got I've got two greyhounds but my parents had rescue greyhounds throughout most of my childhood so I kind of think they're in my genes in a way I grew up with rescue greyhounds lovely um, but I don't think I realized until I adopted uh, my dogs over the last few years um, just what was going on with the racing industry either I think I was kind of blissfully ignorant when I was a child and growing up um, in terms of my experience of greyhounds I mean I think they are life-changing and, and a friend said they're a bit like chips once you have one you <laughs> it's never enough and I think I think I'd agree but it is really interesting I think um, you know people do get worried about the idea of adopting greyhounds because you know they do see the images of them racing around and as you say they've got these these wire muzzles and they look they do look like really honed athletes while I'm looking at my two greyhounds now who are having one of their many emergency sleeps of the day having been taken out for a walk they'll happily sleep for another hour or so now and for dogs that look so stunningly beautiful when they are running around in the park they seem to love spending an awful lot of time being very very still but um i mean they are really i think they're they're very special dogs and kind of i would say that wouldn't i because i am very biased but they they are such gentle souls and although you know, it does take a bit of thought if you are thinking of adopting one in terms of helping them to adapt to home life, because um, depending on the kind of rescue you get them from, the greyhounds may never have lived in a home. Um, they may never have experienced the kind of things that uh, dogs normally do. And so you do have to be prepared for that. And the first greyhound I had came straight from a rescue kennel. She'd been racing until the week before I went to see her and I picked her up about uh, three or four weeks later. Uh, she'd never seen stairs, she'd never seen furniture, anything like that. And she spent the first few minutes excitedly sniffing electrical sockets for some reason, but <laughs> <laughs> slightly alarming at the time. But, luckily, yes. <laughs> but what was interesting was how quickly she adapted. And I mean, you know, things like very basic things like she wasn't house trained. I mean, she'd obviously, she'd come straight from a kennel. And I have to say, I was quite worried about that. But she basically picked it up straight away um, I was given some really good tips by the rescue she never ever had an accident in the house and she seemed to not just adapt to but just to relish her new life and love the fact that you know she had soft beds and had a very different lifestyle I mean as you can tell I, I love greyhounds I just think they're such they're very gentle souls um, they're very special dogs and I think they're fantastic lockdown companions <laughs> because they actually have 
they're very flexible and adaptable and they're fundamentally very lazy dogs. And I mean that as a compliment. This is what I hear. You know, I love, I love greyhounds. And in doing research for this podcast, I went to bed the other night just thinking, oh, I've got to rescue an ex-racer. <laughs> that was it. I had a dream about greyhounds. And, um, but something people say, Andrew, this could be also one for you, is that greyhounds also suffer from corns or deformed feet. Uh, perhaps it's a confirmation issue because they are quite tall and leggy, um, but their feet are proportionately too small for their bodies. Is that right? Or have I just made that up? <laughs> yeah, that's not something that um, is part of our um, awareness within veterinary practice. What we tend to see is a couple of things. One is uh, very bad teeth, unfortunately. Um, it seemed to be that nearly all of the mini uh, greyhounds that I saw when I, when I was a small animal veterinarian uh, before I went into academia was um, all of these greyhounds seem to have bad teeth uh, from poor quality diets and lack of dental care in racing kennels over many years. So that was a real shame. The other thing that uh, Sarah mentioned was how her rescue greyhound was so unfamiliar with a normal household setting um, and hadn't been toilet trained and, and so on. We know that one of the uh, major causes of death, unfortunately, of greyhounds at the racing tracks is actually um, being um, killed because of aggression problems because these animals are not habituated to um, normal environments and they're not socialized in a normal way. There are um, many, many reports of them being kept in kennels in which the uh, surroundings are pretty deprived for these animals. Uh, they're often not receiving the routine preventative health care that uh, domesticated dogs receive and not going through normal socialization with other dogs and people. Uh, so sadly, because of that, um, they do have these problems interacting with other greyhounds when they meet them at the tracks and there can be aggression incidences and that does result in dogs being put down, which is, which is very sad. It is, of course, no fault of their own. Uh, it's essential for all dogs to be able to be happy, healthy and, and confident and well behaved uh, around other dogs and people that they do go through this socialization process when they're at this um, early stage of a few months of their lives, uh, when the brain learns all those really important social skills and how to behave normally around other dogs and in urban environments. And very sadly, many of those dogs um, don't get that kind of experience. And so we see the results um, sometimes at the tracks which is uh, very sad. Oh, it's so sad. Uh, Sarah, it must break your heart thinking that your dogs that are with you right now, and I know, Julie, you've got some greyhounds with you at the moment, whilst I've got my bull terrier sat beside me, quite the polar opposite in terms of uh, being aerodynamic, shall we say. <laughs> Yours are, mine isn't. It must break your heart thinking that your dogs spent the first three years of their life, perhaps a third of their lifetime, in such despicable conditions that didn't nurture them and bring the best out of them and I can imagine how rewarding it is for you to give them the, the great life now. Yeah it's really interesting listening to what Andrew was saying about the lack of socialization because um, I've seen some pictures of where one of my greyhounds lived um, it was actually ended up being a, a case that was taken on um, I think by one of the welfare charities but her conditions were incredibly deprived and she certainly had no socialization now, I've had her since she was two, 
um, and she is the happiest greyhound and she absolutely loves everybody. Um, she has had a very, very tough start in life and I know that and I've seen the photographs to back this up, but she doesn't have any behavioural issues. So I think the point is that, yes, for some greyhounds it may be quite tough to make that transition, but I do think that lots more of them with the right help and encouragement and, and sort of an understanding owner can make a, a transition to a very happy home life. Um, my other greyhound who I who have uh, rescued, she is quite wary of men that she doesn't know. And it's actually a specific type of man. It's basically an older gentleman with no hair. <laughs> that seems to, of which I discovered there are a surprising number in my local park. But um, <laughs> she's fine with younger men and men who have a good head of hair, but it's a quite a specific reaction. Now there's no aggression. All she does is plant, plant her feet and refuse to go near them. But um, with some socialization and getting her used to people, and it happens that uh, one of my dog walkers fitted that description. And that's been a really good thing actually for my dog. But she now is much, much better. And I know how to manage the situation. And as I said, there's no aggression involved. It's just, I have to understand and, and you know, visitors, um, when we're allowed them, have to understand that she might not rush, you know, she won't rush up to them and greet them and she'll come to them in her own time. So I think all I would say is that if anyone is thinking of uh, taking on a greyhound and then thinks, actually, no, they're going to be a, you know, a bundle of behavioural problems and possibly aggression, as long as you have the right conversation with a rescue charity and are very honest about what you can and can't cope with. So if you have children or if you have caring responsibilities or if you're going to be working part of the day or out of the house, then they will try and match you with, with a greyhound who you know, hopefully you will be able to live with um, sort of happily for a long time. And that's certainly what's, you know, that's certainly been my experience with the three that I've rescued. I've always been matched with greyhounds who, you know, they've been, they have been and are an absolute delight and they have taken into account the rescue charities, my own situation. Um, and that's, that's absolutely brilliant. Now, how many greyhounds would you say then, Julie, Andrew, Sarah, are born every year? So we've got to remember the racing career is only, say, a maximum of three years. A greyhound hopefully will live till they're 15. So w what's being done? So w when a greyhound gets to three, what tends to happen, Andrew? Oh, around about two to three years of age is when the greyhounds are probably at their peak. Most of the racing greyhounds are about that age. As you say, they would normally live to, you know, quite old. Uh, some of them could live to, to uh, 15, as you've uh, mentioned. But by the time they're about five to six years of age, they're generally considered past their prime and generally uh, retired out of the greyhound racing industry. And when I say retired, that's a variety of different fates. And some of those fates, unfortunately, do mean the, the greyhounds are being put down. Um, it would be wonderful if, if they were all uh, adopted into you know, loving, caring homes. But the reality is that, that many of them are put down. Another big problem, I think, is the significant proportion of greyhounds that um, aren't considered to be racing fast enough at a very young age. They don't make the grade, uh, not, not considered suitable to become profitable racers. And uh, we know that thousands of those animals seem to disappear every year before actually entering uh, the racing circuits. Um, and it's difficult to be sure of how many because uh, the transparency of this industry has been so low. But uh, 
I've seen estimates, conservative estimates, somewhere between about 3,700 and 4,700 uh, greyhounds are actually sort of disappearing each, each year. And as I say, those are considered to be conservative estimates. So these are really big concerns, actually, what's happening all to all the greyhounds that are, are not making the grade, how many of those are being put to sleep. And what about the ones that uh, are considered to be no longer racing fast enough to be profitable, even though they've only lived uh, perhaps a third of their lifespan? Uh, what's happening to all of those as well? So yeah, because really big concerns. Really big, because you've got the governing body, which is the, the Greyhound Board of Great Britain. Is that right, Julie? Yes, that's the regulator of the greyhound racing industry. Yeah, and don't they give a contribution every year to the Retired Greyhound Trust, which, uh, you know, is supposed to take on the majority of, of greyhounds, obviously, the clues in the name. Yeah, uh, well, the, um, the betting companies give a voluntary levy into the uh, British Greyhound Racing Fund, and the contribution is 0.6% of the turnover of racing. Um, and... That translated, I have to do the maths quickly, but that translated into about 8 million in their last financial year. And 51%, 50% of that was used for welfare. Um, and if I recall my figures correctly, um, the Greyhound Trust would have been given a grant or given a contribution of just over a million. And then around £94,000 was spent on stadium, in, under the banner of welfare, but stadium grants, uh, tractors, um, trap and kennel improvements or kennel works. Right. And I think if you had someone from the Greyhound Trust, they would say, while that just uh, 1.3 million is a very welcome contribution, it doesn't really touch the sides in terms of the welfare expenses of rehabilitating a greyhound for homing. And in the last annual report I read of the British Greyhound Racing Fund, um, the chairman's report says that the relationship with the Greyhound Trust at an HQ level has actually broken down. And I think that then means they won't be funding at, a, at an, an aggregate level, but they would be giving money to the local branches, but I couldn't speak for them. But all that to say, there's never enough money for welfare. No, exactly. And then going back to Andrew, you know the results of all your injuries, which are pretty, pretty abhorrent, actually. We've got some links that when the podcast airs, I'm going to share on social media as well. But did you not present your findings to the, the self-regulatory body? I mean, yes, I've presented them at a couple of forums. One was at the uh, AppDog meeting in 2018. So that's the All-Parliamentary Dog Animal Welfare Group at Westminster, um, at which representatives of the industry were there, along with uh, welfare charities. And there was also a separate meeting that was organised at the Dogs Trust um, with, again, representatives from the Greyhound Board of Great Britain. Uh, certainly at the latter, uh, they expressed a desire to meet further and consider further progressing some of the recommendations in my report because I had provided about 10 recommendations of changes to tracks and procedures that could be expected to reduce injury rates. Um, sadly, there, there was no further follow-up on that. There have been no further meetings or any progress at all, unfortunately. So I guess I, I have to genuinely question uh, the 
the commitment of the industry to actually trying to advance animal welfare when firstly we know that the financial contributions for doing that uh, as as julie said don't even touch the sides of the of really making a difference to the problem and secondarily there's been uh, no follow-up meetings to progress any of the recommendations which would clearly decrease injuries and deaths in racing greyhounds so it's 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 nice that they have said that they are concerned about welfare but um, I'm afraid the greyhounds need action not not words absolutely now bringing Sarah in now Sarah you know as a, a dog lover you'll know about the animal welfare act that came into play in 2006 and it was big news um, Andrew will concur on this and and Julie finally animals had a law and since then though it seems absolutely Nothing has been done to change the greyhound industry. I mean, what do you make of it as, as a dog lover? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm sort of frustrated by the lack of action. And I don't understand why it is that the issue around greyhound racing and the, the level of injuries that we've been hearing about from Andrew, the um, shocking conditions they're kept in in some cases, and just the sort of the, the the way that greyhounds seem to be slipping through the net, they're not viewed in the same way that other dogs are. And I find it really frustrating that although there is some traction around this issue, and obviously it's great to discuss it in today's podcast, I mean, I'm surprised when, you know, there's been so much said about the, the, the value and the benefits of having dogs over the last year or so, and so many dog lovers having conversations about how how much their dogs mean to them. And there have been some... Uh, you know, clampdowns on puppy breeding and puppy farming. And that's all really welcome. But greyhound racing seems to be one of those things that just doesn't get, get the same publicity and the same reaction that it, I think it would do. Um, or, you know, I'm surprised it isn't getting. So um, I really hope that, that, you know, some action is taken because, um, as I said, these dogs are such, they're such sensitive dogs. They're such kind souls. And although my experience is quite limited over the years, you know, either my parents or I have rescued a number of dogs and I have seen at first hand some of the problems, either health wise or psychological, that result from um, the life they've had previously on the track. And it's something that I don't really want to see other greyhounds um, have to go through. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, we're doing a lot for animal welfare, Lucy's Law, ban puppy imports, Finn's Law, and of course, Finn's Law Part 2, which is being discussed in Parliament at the moment. It had its second reading, you know, last week. Julie, do you think Finn's Law Part 2 might make a difference? Because we need something to happen. Or do you think this is impenetrable and if it is why is this um, are people afraid of the GBGB or is it taxes that government are taking that's stopping any anything happening because I can't just I can't see the logic I, I I'm, I'm bemused well if we look at the legislation it's quite complicated and I would describe it as a contradiction in terms so the primary legislation is the Animal Welfare Act and when I read that I can see a very proactive onus upon whoever is looking after an animal and it's, um, it's protecting animals from suffering and anybody who is in charge of an animal has to take active steps. Um, so it's proactive rather than reactive to prevent harm. And yet listening to Andrew's research, uh, greyhounds are put on a track. We know that they may break a limb running around that first bend. They may break their back. They may die on the track. Around 200 dogs die a year on the track. 
So knowingly, a multi-million pound industry is putting companion dogs at risk on a track. So you ask yourself, well, how is that at all possible when we know that the primary legislation is supposed to protect animals from harm? And the answer to the question is that there is secondary legislation which came in in 2010. So the Welfare of Racing Greyhounds regulations, which permits racing and permits self-regulation of racing, providing which the GBGB is, is accredited under the UK accreditation system, accreditation service, I think it is. So it's, it's actually legal to put that dog at risk on a track, which listening to everything Sarah has said, and I absolutely agree with yeah. her, the value of them as pets and how forgiving they are. I found it most striking that they've come, some of the ones we've had from the most horrific circumstances, and they are the most forgiving animals I could ever imagine. Yeah, I can't believe Defra isn't sharpening its pencil on this, Andrew. What do you think? It is, so we've got the Animal Welfare Act, but we're making an exception to so many parts of, the, of that bill, that act that Greyhound Racing is clearly breaking the law on. We're making it legal. This doesn't make sense to me unless I'm just being blonde. Not at all. Um, the Animal Welfare Act does indeed place a duty of care on anyone who's responsible for an, an animal to safeguard its welfare. And you can certainly make the legal argument that uh, placing them in an environment which has a high degree of hazard is contrary to safeguarding their welfare. So it would indeed be interesting to sort of see a legal test case. Um, there hasn't been one, one yet in this area, but I, I think you can, you can certainly make the argument that this uh, contravenes the, certainly the spirit and probably the letter of the Animal Welfare Act. One thing which really strikes me as being very strange in terms of modern day animal welfare and the legislative scenario we have is if a racing owner um, ceases racing with the dog and the dog has ceased due to death, um, when they notify the regulatory body, one of the questions on the form they have to fill in about the dog having ceased racing is, you know, did the dog die? If the dog died, was it put to sleep by a veterinarian? And if not put to sleep by a veterinarian, describe the circumstances. Now, I have to ask myself, and I'm sure most, most people who are interested in animal welfare would say, describe what, the circumstances. Well, in what world is a veterinary surgeon not, not putting a dog to sleep? Who is doing it if it's not the vet? Yes. And that, that's still in their, in their bureaucracy within the self-regulated industry. Sarah, bringing you in here, I know we're, we're having to wrap up fairly soon. Um, but Sarah, I'd like your view on that. You know, it's the bit that says under other circumstances. That worries me. I think we've heard so much about how greyhounds can be exploited in their lives from those that are too slow to make the grade who are basically put down to those who get injured or die on the tracks um, and those who don't find a home if they're lucky enough to retire. But to find out that actually if they um, are if they are injured and and die as part of their racing career they may not even have the kind of uh, dignified death at the hands of a veterinary surgeon i think just is is incredibly upsetting and we've heard so much about what gentle souls they are and you know if you see a racing greyhound sort of on on a poster or on tv or something you might not think it but they really are incredibly kind and gentle souls and so the thought of them meeting a, 
you know, a horrible end uh, in difficult circumstances is incredibly upsetting. It's absolutely dreadful. Um, you know, it makes my stomach churn, to be honest. And, and hang on a minute, because there is a grey Greyhound Forum, who would like to chip in on this, where all the big charities are together in agreeing that Greyhound Racing is quite flawed in many areas, yet still there is no change. So I wouldn't want to speak for them, but my observation of the forum is that, as you said, it's comprised of some of the bigger welfare charities and the racing industry, and they have a dialogue with the racing industry. So I'm assuming that they would hope that through that dialogue they could make some change. Um, we've had racing in this country for 95 years, and it's only in the last three years that we've had any kind of data, which is superficial at best, that tells us the injury statistics and it tells us the death statistics and the number of dogs that are homed or retained by their trainer. And opposition to racing precludes membership of that forum. So uh, it's, it's difficult, I guess, to be, to be critical um, if you're sitting in those meetings, but you know, that's for the forum to answer. Uh, Forever Hounds Trust is um, a very big homing organisation for greyhounds. They were part of the forum and they heard Andrew's research and decided that they could no longer be part of the forum. So they stepped down or rather they changed their position um, to one being both pro-welfare and opposed to racing. And as I said, membership of the forum means that you cannot have an opposing position. So they had to leave. Um, I just hope that those, those welfare organisations would listen to something like your podcast, Anna, and, you know, read around the subject and see what people like um, Sarah and I are facing when we hone these greyhounds who are gentle souls and so forgiving and on a vast scale. So the racing strength is reputed to be around 16,000 dogs. So it is a vast number of dogs. And I hope that they would join join the voices who are calling for a ban. Absolutely. Andrew, yes, um, a final comment from yourself, please. I mean, absolutely. Unfortunately, because of the uh, intrinsic hazards within uh, greyhound racing, because of the high speeds of the dogs and the uh, risks associated with track design, uh, it can't be an environment that's good for the welfare of these dogs without fundamentally redesigning the tracks and the system. So um, it shouldn't be going ahead. Um, they are incredibly gentle, uh, lovely dogs. All the ones I've seen in, in many years in veterinary practice have, have been like that uh, pretty much. And they deserve so much better than uh, the treatment that they're receiving in the greyhound racing industry. Absolutely. I mean, we know now, Andrew, don't we, you know, 10 years ago, emotional intelligence was questioned on a scientific level amongst um, all sorts of dog trainers and vets and scientists. But since then, technology has allowed us to understand that dogs do think like we think, you know, MRI scans and so on, all this great technology we have. And it's now pretty universally accepted that dogs have emotional intelligence, which basically means for me, I'm racked. I can't bear the thought of these dogs in in less than good kennels not having any affection and love and socialization and i would really hope that government could shape up on this um sarah final statement from yourself please well yes i mean I, it's it's not my petition but i i think it'd be really great just to plug the petition that's currently yeah, yeah um, exactly up and running uh, a parliamentary petition which is 
obviously aiming to get this raised and debated in Parliament uh, to ban greyhound racing. So I know it's something that Julie's very passionate about and that's how I first made contact with her. Um, so, I mean, I've certainly signed and a lot of my friends have. And I really feel that this is something that, you know, it's been on the agenda for a while. There's been a sort of increasing, I'd say, chorus of voices now talking about banning it. And it does feel like in 2021, it, it should be a year where I, I very much hope that uh, that this is debated and that greyhound racing is banned. Well, yes, I've signed the petition. I would like it to be banned. I think it's needless in this day and age. I don't really understand why it's carrying on, to be honest. But then I, I don't like fox hunting and I don't like culling badgers either. <laughs> um, I'm definitely on that side of the fence. But um, I, I hope this podcast will promote thought to all our listeners. Julie, Anything else you would like to say as representing the Alliance Against Greyhound Racing? Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for promoting the petition because um, that's exactly what we need. We need Westminster focus. We need the 100,000 signatures to get, get it discussed in Parliament. And if everyone who loves a companion dog or thinks that this, you know, the way that the greyhounds are being treated is a national disgrace, which I happen to think it is, then um, we'd be, you know, we would love them to sign the petition and help us get it over the line. I think one thing we've talked about a lot is conditions that the dogs are kept in and how they're raced. We touched briefly on the fact that there is a risk of doping. And of all the dog runs in 2019, there were only, I think it's something like 2% of those dog runs were actually sampled for drugs. And, you know, prohibitive substances have been found. Um, five instances of cocaine in uh, racing samples in Glasgow in 2018-19. And it's not clear to us that that's, which is, you know, they're illegal substances, it's not clear to us that that's being referred to the police. In fact, we know that in the case of Glasgow, it wasn't referred to the police. As for England, we don't know if they're referring those to the police. They host, the industry hosts its own disciplinaries, hands down its own reprimands and penalties. And under the Animal Welfare Act, I go back to that point, that yeah. presumably would be illegal. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, these substances, as you say, are illegal, whether it's a human or a dog. It's rubbish. I mean, we know the penalties in human sport for taking stimulants, outright bans and um, a lot of disgrace and shame. So it doesn't help. And it, it all goes back to the Animal Welfare Act, which it seems that the GBGB is um, trying to fly, fly above. Well, it has this uh, secondary legislation which permits the self-regulation of racing. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody for joining me on A Dog's Life today and let's definitely get this petition over the line. Well, that's our show, Mr Binks. What did you think? Yes, greyhound racing is horrendous and we must do everything we can to stop it, starting by signing the petition, ban greyhound racing, to end unnecessary deaths and suffering of racing dogs. There is a link to this petition in the show notes. I hope you all enjoyed it and I hope you will sign the petition. Thanks to all my guests today and links to all their profiles are also in the show notes. Thanks to my patient producer, Mike Hansen, and to Pod People Productions for the music and production, and please follow them at Pod People UK. For more about me, I'm at Anna Webb Dogs, or visit my website, annaweb.co.uk. 
We'll be back in your feed next Sunday. So why not subscribe now on your favorite podcast app as we're on all of them. Bye for now. Thank you.